Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I'm Sam Ashurst, I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a podcast human. My name's Shay Mossovan, I am a VHS distributor and minor producer of yeah, sorts yeah. and podcast billionaire oh that's right yeah if we had a dollar for every time we recommended a movie that no one has seen or possibly wants to see <laughs> then we would have at least 200 dollars, right yeah times times a thousand whoa we really are rich what are we doing this for i don't know <laughs> it's because we love the movies oh, that's right? right that's right of course <laughs> yes yeah so we can talk about martin scorsese movies yes i'm so so excited to do our first ever scorsese picture on the arrow video podcast Hugo is also available so i'm sure we'll get to that eventually but wolf of wall street one of my favorite movies from the moment i saw it and in fact i only saw it once i saw it at the press screening in 2013 so it has been as much as i loved it it has been 10 years since i revisited this movie oh no kidding um, so i'm really really excited to talk about what that experience was like mm -hmm. but first i'd love to know your background with wolf of wall street specifically well i did see it back in the day i'd rented it and I remembered only a couple of scenes. And when they happened this time, it was absolutely thrilling. Yes. It, they really held up everything about this movie, just delivered and delivered and delivered. And everything in between that I'd forgotten was a whole new revelation. What was so exciting for me watching this for the second time, what made it such a pure joy and made me wish I'd revisited it sooner, every scene, I was like, oh, this is a great scene, but there's an even better one coming. Oh, this is a great scene, but there's an even better one coming. It's like so many moments stitched together. And that's what Scorsese does so well. This really feels like peak, peak Scorsese in the way he structures and delivers the morality or the moral of his story which oh. we'll also get on to later i'm getting ahead of myself what's the the plot of wolf of wall street we have leonardo dicaprio playing leonardo dicaprio <laughs> i mean jordan belfort <laughs> a wall street broker who was a real person and cut more corners than he chopped out lines of coke and boy did he ever cut out some lines of coke oh my goodness yeah this movie is a, a an orgy of drug taking and hookers and and all sorts of crimes being shredded debauchery debauchery basically from start to finish uh, dicaprio compared it to caligula caligula it's such a good comparison and yeah it really is wild and i can't believe that scorsese was like in his 70s when he made this movie like it's one of his raunchiest movies yeah it's up there when you look at tarantino saying that he's going to retire after 10 movies because late stage directors that's when they make their worst stuff this is one of Scorsese's best ever movies and he made it towards the end of his career. Incredible stuff. I actually was lucky enough to interview Paul Thomas Anderson about Inherent Vice, which was around about the time this movie came out and PTA had interviewed Scorsese about The Wolf of Wall Street and I asked him about it because, you know, obviously I love the movie and he said, um, Marty's great to interview because he just talks so much. You just have to ask him one question and he's off to the races. He's so generous, he doesn't have to be, but he's still so enthusiastic and generous and supportive. It's amazing to have a conversation with him, talk about swimming in the ocean. It's like a big wave of information that comes at you. And Quentin's the same way. They have these minds that are just so full of information and film stuff. 
And uh, he said about The Wolf of Wall Street specifically, I loved that movie. It's just so fucking flat out. It really just says fuck it. And that's really exciting. It's three hours long. It has coke in the girl's ass. It's a director saying, you want to see how it's fucking done? Let me remind you. And yeah, this is a director (laughs) saying this is how it's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is really one of the biggest cinema fans and cheerleaders that there are. He's always talking about different movies that you should go see. Yes. And and not just American movies. He's very influenced by international cinema. And, you know, last episode we were talking about Phantasm and talking about Don Coscarelli, who is a genre bender and a blender. Scorsese works within genre, and I think a lot of people associate him with gangster movies or movies about criminals doing violent things. And really, his content isn't really his focus. He's he's rising above genre. He's transcending genre and making movies that make you feel something with their technical prowess, with the poeticism of the writing, of the small motions of hand, of the little finer details that say so much about the characters. And here you have Leonardo DiCaprio, expertly cast, being an absolute master of his craft. Yeah. And and he is such a scumbag, <laughs> but he's so incredibly entertaining. A- absolutely, yeah. This is a comedy. This is a dark comedy. There was a bit of controversy when it came out and Vanity Fair wrote a piece, headlined does wolf of wall street glorify criminals yes and then the subhead was it's three hours of cash drugs and hookers without real consequences but the consequences are in every scene i mean this guy not only is he a total douchebag he's a total joke like pretty much every scene has as much cringe comedy as an episode of the office oh my god yeah it's so cringe it's never ending this guy like he cannot help but contradict himself at every turn yes. like he he really he thinks that he's on top of the world yeah because he is but something that comes up over and over again is this idea of moby dick and the white whale yes and he even talks about this early on when he's building his team that he that, takes that, to that, wall street that is a perfect example he says i'm going to turn you all into captain ahab's which is already kind of funny and then someone says who's captain ahab and he's like oh you know from that book from the book and then blows it off, <laughs> blows it off. <laughs> but early in the movie there's a scene with matthew mcconaughey which oh. actually might be my second favorite scene in the whole movie yeah because mcconaughey's character is incredible it's almost completely improvised Mm -hmm. actually most of this movie is founded on improvisation which is so amazing but mcconaughey's character is this real like kind of helmet haired 90s new york broker with you know money coming out of his ears and does he does this chest pounding move yeah yeah that's almost like he's beating a native american drum and connecting with his his inner self because he it's almost like he can't feel anything anymore Mm -hmm. through all the drugs and through all of the cognitive dissonance of thinking that he's doing good for himself and for for his city and what you're really getting in that scene with dicaprio like fresh-eyed and kind of you know new on the job is um you're getting the sense that McConaughey is the white whale about to swallow him up and bring him into this new world. And DiCaprio is just enamored and completely fascinated with with the debauchery in front of him. Yeah, exactly. And like he's kind of initially rejecting it. Like he just has water. He doesn't have the martini. He says no to the coke. And there's a sense that, you know, this is him before he's corrupted by capitalism, before he's corrupted by 
America in a way. Like for me, what's so fascinating about the fact that McConaughey does that kind of Native American style chant and it was improvised. Apparently that is something that he just does to prepare himself for scenes uh, sometimes. And there's a, a, a moment in the movie where you see DiCaprio kind of look over his shoulder and it works for the character, but that was DiCaprio actually looking at Scorsese and like saying, is this okay? Like what the fuck's going on here basically? Uh, and it works perfectly. So they left it in the movie. But what also works perfectly is that connection to like Native American spirituality because for me, no one interrogates America like Scorsese. You've got the blue collar criminals in Goodfellas and the white collar criminals in Wolf of Wall Street. And we're going to see a, a different kind of criminal in Killers of the Flower Moon, um, you know, next month. And I really feel like Scorsese sees there's something very, very rotten at the heart of America. And that rot started from its very inception. Um, I think that's why he was drawn to Killers of the Flower Moon, because it's kind of a perfect encapsulation of what he's been investigating in lots of different movies throughout his career. Um, so it's just wonderful that that moment happens and they left it in the movie and it builds to a moment later on in the movie where a whole crowd of people are doing that um oh, gesture that you know. scene is maybe i think that is my third favorite scene yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that speech is just magnetic yes. electrifying absolutely and I, I wanted to ask you what you thought of his management style <laughs> oh yeah well it's <laughs> that's that's very interesting because he has a very very loyal devoted following and there's a scene where he talks about <laughs> it's when he's <laughs> supposed to be he's made a deal how much into spoilers should we get into here? Just a, maybe a couple real good ones that don't ruin let's say, the magic. Let's, yeah. I'm not going to say the context of this, but he's talking to one of his employees and he's kind of reminiscing and, um, you know, talking about how she came to him and asked him for 5000 an advance of 5000 to get her kid through school. And he gave her 25000 because he believed in her. And so I actually think, in a way... There is the germ of a good manager in there. There is someone who's like leading with empathy, yeah. bizarrely, even though he's a total psychopath yeah. when it comes to his personal relationships and, you know, the way he is when like he's with the boys. Yeah. But there is whether he's just using it to manipulate people or, or what, but there's the germ of a good manager in there. But yeah, I think he's actually a really good manager, and I yeah. think that's part he of... he inspires everyone. And yes, yeah, yeah. He, he gets up there, he riles people up. It's yeah. like a pep rally every time he talks to people. But ultimately, he knows he's going to profit, and he's doing all these illegal things, and, and he knows if he riles up his workforce, yeah. he stands to make millions and millions of dollars. Well, that's the other thing. Like, he's doing secret deals. Like, he's not telling his workers how much profit he's personally making from their work. Oh, yeah. They've got their incentives, but his are much higher. Yeah, it's really interesting. Just to go back a bit to the, the, the rotten heart of America. America is also really dazzling and exciting. And the American dream is, it's a thrilling concept. And this is kind of about the darkness of the American dream as well, about if you work for it, you can achieve it. Yeah. Um, but and, what is the cost? But what is the cost exactly? Yeah. He doesn't rule over the roost with fear. He's not like a Glengarry Glen Ross type, like Alec Baldwin, who's saying, 
fuck you to everybody. He's saying, fuck the customer, make as much money off of them as you possibly can. Right. I'm on your team. But I think that he himself is motivated by fear. I think this is a huge part of the Wolf of Wall Street. He came from the middle class. They mm -hmm. don't talk a whole lot about his background. Mm. But what's the thing that the middle class fears the most? Or someone like Jordan? Poverty, mm -hmm. instability, can't pay for surgery, can't pay for the car repair. And, and here's a guy who's making 23 million in a day and he's doing it on the backs of the middle class and the poor. You know, basically the people that he grew up with on these, these fraudulent stocks that eventually turn into legitimate stocks. And, and, you know, these are people putting their life savings on the line, thinking they're gonna quadruple their investment, and they never do. And that's kind of the hidden horror film oh, of The yeah. Wolf of Wall Street, yeah, is yeah. all of the, the casualties along the way. You know, he's climbing this human ladder to the very top of the 1%. And he's thinking he's Robin Hood stealing from the rich, but he's really just lining his own offshore, off-the-grid, tax-free international accounts. And he's so hedonistic, it's just, it's, it's a weakness. Yeah. Like, it's actually a scam that he has, has bought into. That's his white whale. Like, he thinks that, that he can basically outsmart the FBI, the public, the investors that work with him. But he's got this like imposter syndrome right. running throughout the entire film, which is Definitely. so fascinating to watch him sell his way harder and harder out of it. But he's just like walking this tightrope tied between Trump Tower and wherever he is to prove that he isn't afraid of the great heights that he's literally about to fall from. Absolutely, yeah. And Trump is a really interesting figure when talking about this movie obviously it came out in 2013 so before trump's run for president but obviously scorsese's a new york guy so he would have known trump and the kind of man trump is and you notice that when jordan breaks up with his wife they do it at the at the foot of trump tower that's a big turning point moment in the movie and and the fact that scorsese's chosen to put it there is very interesting and yeah it could be about the trump story like the rise and fall and belfort's speeches feel like trump rallies he's going for all these kind of subpoenas and indictments and there's that scene where his pi tells him not to talk to the fbi he says only your lawyer talks to them they're smart you're dumb and then the next scene is the yacht scene, one of my favorite scenes. That's my favorite scene. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> and even that reminds me of Trump, like him doing all these interviews and getting himself into deeper shit. Oh my God, um, yeah. And, and as good as he is with the workers, there's that moment where, again, you know, shows the disrespect he has for the people beneath him. He throws his watch into the crowd. Someone catches it and he says, oh, hit him, hit him, get it. You know, and that's like Trump encouraging violence, his rallies. And even the way he says winners is Trumpian during the Steve Madden speech. Yeah, I can't believe that people saw this movie in the same way that some people saw Goodfellas and said, oh, Scorsese's celebrating gangsters. And in this one, oh, Scorsese's celebrating or deifying these, these white-collar criminals. And it's as ridiculous now as it was when Goodfellas came out. Obviously, Goodfellas also is about that American dream in a weird kind of way. It's, it's this kid, this poor kid that falls in with the gangsters and, and rises um, and has his own kind of fall from grace. And... But Wolf is arguably more degenerate than Goodfellas. Like, mm -hmm. they've got the crazy members of the team, but they also have a code and a way of doing things, whereas these guys don't have any loyalty to each other, really. 
uh, in Wolf of Wall Street. And it's just so clear that Scorsese hates these people. Oh, like, you can feel it. Yeah, pure yeah. hatred. I mean, we were laughing nonstop in that uncomfortable way when yeah. you're watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like you mentioned The Office earlier, and I felt like, oh my God, how could you feel anything but shame and, and cringe? And in that Steve Madden scene when mm -hmm. he's riling up the crowd, he screams, there's no nobility in poverty. Yeah. And are you behind on your rent? Good. Yeah, right. Pick up that, the phone oh, and yeah, dial. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that whole speech is fucking amazing. It, yeah. He's he's selling his crowd. Like he's playing into the fears of of these people who who want to be him. You're going to be normal, mediocre. You're going to be predictable. You're going to be punching the clock and going to church, and going to TGI Fridays on Sundays. <laughs> you know, like that's the lion at their throat and and he's the lion at their throat but that's also at his throat i mean he's literally going insane from the power that he has yeah and not being able to ever know when to stop absolutely and yeah that makes him comparable to like a roman emperor or something mm -hmm. where they've just got so much power and so much like real estate that they don't know what to do with it and so they have these crazy orgies on planes and they do all the drugs in the world because like what else are they going to do but then you've got his dad who's the only sense of reason in the entire film yeah and there's a scene with his dad that's so brilliant where that they both start talking about like how they prefer a woman a woman's body mm -hmm. and i felt like the scene kept going longer and longer like longer than I would have probably, than maybe most directors would have allowed. Mm -hmm. But Scorsese's like, yeah, let's just, uh, let's keep this going. Like like when you're at a restaurant and listening to a really awkward conversation, you just kind of can't stop listening to it and right. pretending right, that right. you're not listening to it. But I felt like so many scenes in this movie went on a little further than maybe most people would. Definitely, yeah. For me, like, absolutely. It's a really strange mix of really incredibly fast paced and they fit so much in even to the first 10 minutes like mcconaughey the lunch scene is like eight minutes into this movie i've completely forgotten that but like that's how fast they rush through this stuff and uh, another thing i noticed on this rewatch was there's so many incredible really fast insert edits just for like basically a laugh or or for a shock there's that very brief look like a photograph of the shitty tech company that they're selling on the phone and oh, yeah. you know you see what it, they're really selling and yeah. but there's also like a quick glimpse at a, a suicide scene which is shocking but all part of this insane pacing and so it's got that mix of the really fast stuff with as you say the scenes that go on but again I think that's part of the comedy approach of this film where it's part of that making you feel uncomfortable wanting to get out of the scene but it's still going but then it kind of turns around and becomes funny again it's like when sideshow bob steps on the rake in the in the <laughs> simpsons and yeah. it keeps going it stops being funny and then when it comes back to being funny it's the funniest it's ever been and there's uh, even like full-on physical comedy that exactly that's, that's what i'm thinking of mainly actually DiCaprio yeah, yeah. is absolutely brilliant yeah. he is such an incredible physical actor we all know that he's good at, at portraying emotion and evoking all kinds of, of complicated feelings in his audience but i've never seen him just 
with his body alone yeah. be so hilarious absolutely uh, on the one of the extras i think maybe it's the round table maybe it's one of the featurettes but anyway scorsese compares dicaprio to jacques tati and jerry lewis and perfect comparison especially jerry lewis definitely that style of physical comedy just so funny so good and then the visual comedy as well like you've got physical stuff and then you've got kind of one of the punchlines about the car which i'm not going to spoil oh my because God. it's one of the best moments that was the key that we were watching a fantasy movie in yeah. some way because we're in jordan belfort's fantasy world exactly yeah he uses tricks to make you feel like whatever drug state jordan's in like scorsese i mean um with the camera though i don't think scorsese um <laughs> obviously scorsese knows <laughs> one or two things about doing coke um but <laughs> i loved in the round table on the extras there's a moment where jonah hill says oh i, I tried to fa find some quaaludes um, so I could know what it was like. And Scorsese just starts wagging his finger at him. Like, <laughs> like uh, you know, he, he's learned his lesson and now he's the dad telling the kids, no, don't no, do drugs. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, wonderful, wonderful movie. One of my favourites that we've ever done. I, I just cannot believe how much they fit into this film. It's, it's astonishing. It's one of Leonardo DiCaprio's favourite movies he's ever made in terms of like the production experience and, and the movie itself and we should actually say let's talk a little bit more about DiCaprio because we talked about the physical comedy but for me this wasn't a, a performance it was a possession coincidentally I've watched a few Jack Nicholson movies this week I watched Chinatown on the big screen watched Batman on the big screen as well and then we revisited Departed ahead of doing this episode um, as well as uh, Shutter Island actually but yeah, seeing all these Nicholson movies and then watching Wolf of Wall Street, I'm like, oh my God, DiCaprio's the next Nicholson. Mm -hmm. There are so many Nicholson-esque. Uh, it's yeah. in the eyes, it's in the smile, it's in the charisma. Mm -hmm. um, there is a very, very dark charisma at the heart of uh, DiCaprio's performance here. And so, yeah, when I compare someone to Nicholson, that is one of the highest compliments because I think he is, you know, everybody knows how fucking amazing Jack Nicholson is and re-watching Chinatown recently um just really underlined that for me he's that film is as incredible as it is because of Jack Nicholson I can't imagine anyone else in that part Chinatown he moves through it like a cat but anyway forget Chinatown we're here to talk about Wolf of Wall Street do you have any more thoughts about the Wolf of Wall Street Shay? yeah yeah there's something I wanted to point out about the structure it's very roller coaster like people often describe movies as it was a roller coaster but it really is, it's like a slow tick. And, and you can't quite tell, like, are we going up into a peak or are we going down into a trough? Right. <laughs> and there is a point where Jordan Belfort is on the boat with an FBI agent. We mm -hmm. mentioned that earlier. Oh, yeah. You could almost feel the direction of the movie shift. You could right. feel Jordan start to crack a little bit. Yes. And, and the sheen comes off and everything from there is, it's almost um, like he was meeting his match. It's almost like this FBI agent is a wolf in sheep's clothing who's also in wolf's clothing because <laughs> you can see them working each other. You can't quite tell who's holding the cards and it's almost like watching a poker game between two yeah. complete masters of their of their field of their craft who's holding the cards on the deck so to speak <laughs> um but yeah no uh, this movie kind of breaks as many rules as, as jordan belfort does in, in a way like 
um, the FBI agent is kind of a perfect nemesis, but he's not introduced until hours into the movie. Normally, they tell you to get everyone ideally introduced in the first 10 minutes, especially someone as significant as a nemesis. And he is a nemesis because he is like a, a mirror version of Jordan. He's like a path that maybe Jordan could have taken if he hadn't have been successful because this guy he wanted to be a banker he didn't pass his exam and now you know he travels on the subway and he's all the things that Jordan looks down upon but he's everything Jordan isn't he's by the book he's doing everything in the right way he's a fascinating fascinating nemesis for Jordan and that scene the way it escalates because you're trying to work him out. You're trying to work the FBI character out yeah. as much as Jordan is. Because for the majority of it, he's just listening. Yeah. And just encouraging him to talk as, as kind of one word in that situation. Yeah. yeah. But he's also got a bit of cockiness to him as well. Because he's like, could you say that again exactly the way you just said it? <laughs> yeah. Basically telling, telling him you're fucked. This film, it really kind of exemplifies one of the things that I love about Scorsese, which is he has very, very strong morality. Um, he's got a vision of the world and the way he thinks it should be and the way he knows it is. And I think with many of his films, he's showing both at the same time. He's he's showing you how the world is. And then in the third act, he's basically swooping in and, and giving these people their punishment in much the way a fairy tale or, or a fable structured Scorsese mm. movies really remind me of like the oldest forms of storytelling and the Wolf of Wall Street even sounds like a grim fairy tale title again I'm, I'm not surprised he was drawn to it but he's not didactic which is why so many people get confused because he's not didactic two people could watch the same film and one walk away saying, oh, yeah, I'm really glad that he made Jordan Belfort look like a total fool throughout this whole film. And he got what he deserved at the end. You know, I'm not going to say what happens, but and another person could walk away going, oh, my God, I can't believe that life looks so amazing. I can't believe that he celebrated. Like, and it doesn't look amazing. It's hollow and it's depressing. And it's these people are fucking miserable. The scene where, like, they're talking about throwing the little people at the target and they're referring to them as it and things like these things gossip we like we better be nice to them i know like, it was, that I, my jaw was unhinged that entire, yeah, these <laughs> entire are not, scene these are not heroes these are these are fools and these are there to show us how ridiculous the pursuit of capitalism is and how hollow it is and how empty it is and how ultimately evil it is because every rich person is rich because someone's poor and that's what this movie is telling us over and over and over again i loved it one of my favorite ever second watches of anything i'm just sad i didn't get to it again sooner i'm so so glad that we took the time to watch this again i really loved every moment of it and something that really stuck out to me on the second watch was the narration, the way that, that Scorsese works it in because you have Jordan Belfort breaking the fourth wall and telling you, he's narrating directly to you. And then throughout the rest of the film, you're hearing overdub narration. And it was a little hard for me to feel as much empathy for him than I would for maybe another character who, who has had a little more suffering under their belt. And at the same time, I don't think I'm supposed to feel really much empathy for this character at all. <laughs> like Scorsese lined up those pins and, and just knocked him over. It's so seamless 
everything that that Jordan Belfort is is kind of what's wrong with our country mm-hmm. at this time. Like even in the '80s and the '90s, it's like it hasn't changed today. And now we have so many billionaires, we don't even know what to do with them. There's no cap, you know. There's no not to get political, but when does it end? I yeah. think is what Scorsese's asking. And, and what kind of crimes do we see as permissible? Is it okay if you're rich, or is it okay if you're poor? And, and that's the question at the heart of this morality, this quandary that we ask ourselves in elementary school, mm-hmm. that we're supposed to develop an ethical boundary as we grow and what's right and wrong. And I don't know, he just never quite gets there. And Jordan's, <laughs> as, as a real person, kind of fascinating. I, I didn't know until the, the bonus features that he was a producer. <laughs> he actually made movies right. and that he went on to have a different kind of career after his downfall. But at the same time, I think we need people like Jordan Belfort on some level for us to be reminded of our humanity, to be reminded that this isn't really the right way to go. <laughs> and sometimes art is really the only way you can reach people. So God, yeah, when you when you put it like that, like that puts the Wolf of Wall Street above fairy tale and fable on the level of Greek myth. It's, it's the it's Icarus, it's flying too close to the sun. It's getting what you want and that thing destroying you because you've got no boundaries or you've got no limits or yeah. no self-control, mm-hmm. no willpower. It's that inherent flaw, that very, very human flaw that's there potentially within all of us. The more power you have, the more corruptible you are. And we've seen that, not to get political, but uh, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see where uh, the third act of uh, Donald Trump's story goes uh, this year and next year. But if anyone's ever going to direct a, a Trump biopic, I hope it's Scorsese. <laughs> oh, my God. He's the man for the job. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful picture. And yeah, the 4K UHD, gorgeous, gorgeous transfer. It's just so next level compared to the Blu-ray. We, we popped in the Blu-ray to watch the extras, obviously. And, yeah, we did. And just it really, really made the, the quality of the 4K shine. And this the sound. Beautiful. And the sound, yeah. The sound design in this movie yeah. and on the release is impeccable. There's yeah. a scene where you're in a huge room full of hundreds and hundreds of people and then you come in close into a, a very tight shot with about four or five people in, in the camera. And the sound design follows. Even yeah. though he's talking into the same microphone, you're suddenly in a room that's maybe 50 square feet, mm. not 5,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. And you can really hear every nuance and see every nuance mm-hmm. in this incredible release like 4k was the perfect way to watch this yeah absolutely so yeah a massive massive recommendation if you haven't picked this one up yet maybe you feel the same way as us like oh can i tackle that three hour orgy of excess it's so worth it and weirdly when it got to the final scene and the the, the end credits it felt like oh shit it's over already that's how it felt for me <laughs> it did for me too yeah, yeah so honestly real real high recommendation and speaking of recommendations let's move on to stuff we would recommend based on the film shay would you like to go first i would like to go first and honestly this was a really tough decision i battled back and forth with another title which was there will be blood ah, and yeah. The movie that won is, I mean, maybe this is a low-hanging fruit, but I think it's an absolutely necessary one, and it's too perfect to not talk about on the back of Wolf of Wall Street, and that is Citizen Kane. Oh, yes. Perfect. Charles Foster Kane, played by writer-director Orson Welles, 
is a publishing magnate and the most powerful man in the world. Sounds familiar. And he utters a mysterious final word while on his deathbed. So a journalist is hired to decipher the meaning behind this word. And we end up following Cain's rise to power from very humble beginnings. And through this journey, we experience an unexpected tale of tragedy of a person who has every material thing they could ever yes. want, but slowly straining and alienating every meaningful relationship in his life. Both Belfort and Cain are misguided idealists who contradict themselves at every turn. And the ends never really justify the means. Although I think Cain might have been a little more noble and deeply conflicted, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but Jordan was a flagrant hedonist and quite possibly a sociopath. Uh, well, one thing I find really delightful about Citizen Kane is not only that it is arguably one of the best films of all time, but it's hands down definitely the best vanity project of all time. <laughs> yeah. So if you've never seen it, take a little bit of time on one of these incoming dark autumn evenings that we have ahead of us. Mm -hmm. You know, spooky season. Watch mm -hmm. some Wall Street, mm -hmm. wolves, and then some... Caniacs. Some Caniacs, exactly. <laughs> For this, you know, incredibly awe-inspiring and ultimately heart-wrenching tale. But also look out for these beautiful shots by Greg Toland and, and Orson Welles and, and the way that their camera techniques evoke emotion and tell a story. That is such a hallmark of Scorsese movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This film, Citizen Kane, took techniques that have been used and actually packed a punch with them and made yeah. them memorable, like deep focus, putting an environment into clarity, these masterfully timed edits by Robert Wise, the emotional score by Bernard Herrmann. It's an absolute, true masterpiece. Yeah. Do take some time to rewatch it if you have not in a long time. Yeah, and speaking of 4K, um, Criterion have a really wonderful uh, 4K UHD of Citizen Kane. So if you're going to double bill them, and uh, yeah, apparently <laughs> Citizen Kane is, is Trump's favorite movie as well. So it kind of works on that level. Oh, go figure. In a weird kind of way. But <laughs> um, yeah, God, what a, what a movie. Obviously, people say it's the greatest of all time, and they're probably maybe right. All right, I'm going to move on to another contender for the greatest film ever made. This is also a little bit on the nose, but I couldn't not recommend Goodfellas from 1990. We mentioned it a little bit earlier on, but I kind of want to dig a bit deeper into why these are companion movies. They share a lot of weird little things in common. They've both got a moment where... The lead character breaks the fourth wall, walking and, and talking to the camera, making eye contact with the audience. And interestingly in Goodfellas, that takes place in a court. So someone who's being punished for the crime. Whereas in Wolf of Wall Street, it's at the scene of the crime um, where Jordan Belfort starts walking and talking. But in both of them, they are giving the audience important information, contextual information about what's going on in the movie at that time. So it also has voiceover. Wolf of Wall Street is interesting with the voiceover because you talked about it's used for narration, but also we hear Jordan Belfort's innermost thoughts. And it also goes down dead ends, which you don't often get in mm. movies, but it makes it feel more naturalistic and real because he'll he, he have a thought and then he'll be like, oh, I don't know why I started talking about that, and, <laughs> you know. Um, and yet other little things like both Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street have lines about ordinary people riding the subway and kind of looking down on them, even though 
obviously in Goodfellas it's blue collar criminals and Wolf of Wall Street is white collar criminals but everyone with money looks down on people riding the subway for some reason also we've got the wives and the mistresses in both big big part of both of their plots and you know similar kind of arguments between Karen and Henry in fact there's even a, a, a shot where we see their little daughter in a nightdress watching them argue and it's exactly the same in Wolf of Wall Street exactly and and (laughs) there's even a line a character I won't say who but in Goodfellas says go to Wall Street and bust some real crooks and there's a line in Wolf of Wall Street where Jordan Belfort's saying oh you should you should go to Wall Street that's where the real crime's happening so I do think that these films are designed to be mirrors of each other a lot of people say that Scorsese remade Goodfellas with Casino. I can see why people would think that, but um, they that's, are they are different movies. It's a genre. Yeah. People are just going, oh, this is a gangster movie. That's a gangster movie. Exactly. They're not looking at the content, though. Exactly. Whereas this is not thought of as a gangster movie, but it absolutely is. Completely. <laughs> you know, they're, they're gangsters. Well, it has, it has the same kind of core characters you have this rotating cast of really dynamic personalities that all contradict each other in the right ways and lift each other up, but uh, ultimately take the whole group down. (laughs) Every single one of them contributes to their own downfall. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. Like, John Bernthal's character in it, what's he called, is it Brad? I think if Scorsese had made this in the the 70s or 80s, that character could possibly have been played by De Niro. He's got a real De Niro energy. Definitely. Um, It's interesting seeing that kind of guy in the context of these guys. Again, in his introduction scene, he's a complete joke. He's a loser. He's like calling to his mum about like whether she got any chicken and... <laughs> oh yeah, and he's he's the local drug dealer. Yeah. And he's kind of the more cliche looking like East Coast gangster that you yeah. expect to show up on The Sopranos or something. Exactly. Scorsese and DiCaprio, I think they wanted to make this earlier in their collaborations together. I think this was originally, they wanted it to do it before Shutter Island. Um, oh wow yeah another adaptation of a book another superb um dicaprio performance so good and yeah when you kind of compare his performance in that to his performance in this how he didn't win an oscar for 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 this especially for wolf of wall street you know he had to wait till the revenant to get his oscar and there was a big kind of joke about how he's never won one and he's desperate for one he needed a bear to help him he needed a bear that's what Wolf of Wall Street Rather needed. Rather than a lion. The bear of Wall Street, he would have had an award. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think uh, Jordan Belfort's character in this movie, if he did enough coke, he would be the one fucking the bear rather than the other way around. But anyway. <laughs> the real cocaine bear is actually... <laughs> Perfect. All right, what's next from you? <laughs> well, I uh, would like to talk about, rather than the crimes of the 1%, let's talk about the working class crime. Oh, Blue Collar. Oh, magnificent movie. 1972, yes. uh, written and directed by Paul Schrader, Scorsese collaborator, writer of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. There's a real obvious connection here. When three underpaid and overworked auto workers plan a heist at their union headquarters, they find a scandalous pile of ledgers that could blow the top off of a major conspiracy. Through broiling interpersonal dramas centered on race and class, these three characters wrestle with the decision to blackmail their crooked bosses or go to the cops. (laughs) Featuring a legendary cast, 
with Yafet Koto, Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel. Blue Collar brings a classical moral dilemma into focus, and it puts you on the floor with the workers instead of the back offices with managers. <laughs> and as we see in Wolf of Wall Street, you have criminals of all varieties. You know, you have people who are committing crimes because they're desperate and they're poor and they have mouths to feed versus people who are desperately afraid of being poor and unable to feed their families. So in Wolf of Wall Street, you have white collar criminals committing crimes because they feel like they're unstoppable and, and they just keep going and going. And then in a movie like this, they're basically committing the same kinds of crimes, but it's almost seen as a little more maverick and noble. You can imagine yourself being in that position, like what would I do if I had children I had to feed mm -hmm. and, and bills to pay and was looking down the barrel of homelessness, not being able to pay for the next load of groceries that I need. And I think it's a really interesting juxtapose to see a movie about blue collar crime, literally blue collar mm -hmm. versus kind of sociopathic style of white collar crime yeah. that, that is rampant in Wolf of Wall Street. And there's a line in the trailer that I really liked. It's, if you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love blue collar so much, actually. I, I reference, I, I name drop blue collar in A Little More Flesh, um, which is actually Shay, the greatest vanity project. But, oh yeah, um, of course. Yeah, much, much better than Move that. over, citizen. Yeah. <laughs> Blue Collar is a fucking perfect, perfect movie and a wonderful, wonderful recommendation. I'm going to go a little bit more obscure for my final recommendation based on this one. I think this is one a lot of the Arrowheads might not have seen, though it has a, a quite a nice, I think, Eureka Blu-ray release if you'd like to pick it up. It is Billy Wilder's 123. Now, I feel like Billy Wilder is a huge influence on Scorsese and, and Wolf has shots that remind me of The Apartment and a pace and a tone that really reminds me of uh, One, Two, Three, which is obviously one of his more underseen movies. But it is uh, a dark comedy about capitalism, about America. It's about a high up executive at, at Coca-Cola who uh, is trying to basically bring capitalism to the communists in Berlin before the construction of the Berlin Wall. Oh, um, okay. So it's about colonialism as much as it's mm. about capitalism. Changing their brands, they can slip underneath the radar. Exactly. I don't think I'll say any more on it than that because it is an underseen one and I don't want to spoil any of the elements of it. Um, it's also has kind of a romantic comedy element to it but i'm i just just watch it it's really hard to categorize it's it's uh the reason it probably is more obscure than something like some like it hot or the apartment is this element of politics that's in there and it really does deal with some complicated stuff but it's also very very funny and witty as all billy wilder movies are and it has, you know, one of his kind of classic ironic endings. So that's all I'll say. One, two, three, Billy Wilder. I recommend it off the back of Wolf of Wall Street. Now, let us move on to what we've been watching in the past couple of weeks. I will start, even though I just finished, uh, because I'm so excited to talk about... <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm trying to find my notes. <laughs> Um, House of Cards. Yes, not the Netflix series, not the British originator of that Netflix series. No, this is a House of Cards that I hadn't heard of in until a couple of weeks ago. It was on the shelf at our local video store, had a cool cover, never heard of it before. Stars George Peppard, 
as a boxer who's out of luck and is wandering the streets of Paris when a, a small child uh, threatens him with a gun. He takes the child back to his very rich family and says, you've got to punish this kid. And the mother, the very wealthy mother of this child says, well, he needs a father figure. He doesn't have a dad. Would you tutor this boy for a, a large sum of money? And that's kind of the setup for this kind of bizarre American giallo. That's the best way I can describe it. The soundtrack mm. is incredible. It's very, very giallo. And Pepper basically finds himself in the midst of a very strange mystery that kind of escalates and escalates and escalates. Very similar to early Argento, where the quote-unquote ordinary person gets caught up in a conspiracy and finds himself invested in it. This one also features Orson Welles. <laughs> and uh, he's not in it loads, but when he is, it's very impactful. He's got his, you know, makeup kit. He's got his clay nose on. Um, <laughs> and he's playing like this very mysterious and suspicious man. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything, but... Please, please, please watch House of Cards if you can. I saw it on Blu-ray. I believe it is on YouTube as well. So if you can't get hold of the Blu-ray, which is, I think, out of print, you can watch it on YouTube. And um, yeah, you will be into this movie from the first few minutes. Once you hear the music over the titles, yeah, you'll be hooked, I think, Precious Arrowhead. This is an Arrow video movie if ever I saw one. So yeah, House of Cards it's from the 60s. It's fucking fantastic. And I recommend it. Shay, do you have your notes? I have a variation in my <laughs> notes. I'm going to go off the cuff with this one. I'm going to talk about the last horror film, which is the third film starring both Joe Spinell and Carolyn Monroe. Oh, yes. Both from Maniac, both from Star Crash, directed by Luigi Cozzi, one of our favorite directors. Yeah, well... <laughs> Movies for me, not so much, but him as a person, as a, as a person. human being, wonderful, wonderful man. Wonderful man. The manager of Argento's Deep Red Shop. Correct. Speaking yeah. of, of Italian horror. Yeah. So this was recently reissued on Severin 4K Ultra HD with five hours of special features. This is a movie that I rented as a teenager because I heard it was kind of an unofficial sequel to Maniac. And, and what it really is is kind of like Bowfinger, <laughs> but for for horror maniacs. Joe Spinell plays a cabbie. He's obsessed with this beautiful actress. He's a horror film aficionado and he wants to make horror films. So he basically stalks this actress in the Cannes Film Festival oh. and is following her around, trying to catch footage of her guerrilla style. And, and when he approaches her and tries to get permission to make this film, he's blown off by her agents, the producers, you know, she thinks it's kind of weird. And and one by one, these people start showing up dead and I wonder who's killing them off. Oh, who could it be? Who could it be? Yeah, this is a great movie. Great recommendation. It's kind of a weird one. It has, it has a strange sort of meandering vibe. It's kind of dreamlike. It's not the best slasher that's, that's ever been or ever will be, but it's a piece of cinematic history starring two people who really had a lot of chemistry. Right, yeah, yeah. And because Spinell died so young and he's such a powerhouse, I try to watch as many of his movies as possible. And this was something that I hadn't seen for many, many years. And it actually delivered a little more fun and, and intrigue than, than ever, you know, than, than even the first time I saw it. 
All right. Well, I am going to recommend uh, a movie which, again, is probably underseen, but by another one of the true great directors, another New York director, a friend of Scorsese. I'm talking about Spike Lee, who around the time I was most obsessed with Scorsese when I was growing up as a teenager, I was absolutely obsessed with Scorsese and De Niro. I worked at a cinema and um, they gave me this giant poster that covered literally the whole of my bedroom wall of uh, De Niro's <laughs> face from Casino, like this massive poster. Um, yeah, Amazing. I was fully, fully obsessed. But around that time, I was also very, very into and obsessed with Spike Lee. Malcolm X was just an all-timer for me. And obviously, Do the Right Thing. Like, so, so many great movies from Spike. But I watched one that I had basically been avoiding. It's such a divisive film, and the subject matter is something that I kind of find really disturbing. Um, but I watched Bamboozled for the first time in the past couple of weeks and oh my god it's another masterpiece it's fucking incredible the darkest of dark humor people have compared it to the producers I think Spike himself has compared it to Kazan's A Face in the Crowd which is an amazing comparison it's essentially about a TV executive who's the only black employee and he's there to give the black perspective and and the black voice in this very racist TV company that kind of looks down on him and kind of bullies him and so he decides to to quit by being fired by basically suggesting that they bring back blackface, they bring back the minstrel show, but with a twist that it's black people wearing the blackface. And he assumes that this is going to be so offensive, so controversial that he'll get fired. But as with the producers, it gets picked up and it becomes very, very popular and, and the movie goes on from there. Damon Wyans is fantastic in the lead role, doing something that I've never seen him do before. It's like he's putting on a front, like he's putting on a mask, let's say, to survive in the environment he's in. Uh, there's a really beautiful scene where he's with his father where it's almost like we see the real him for the first time. He kind of drops the show a little bit. It's a wonderful scene, but the whole film is is comprised of really impactful, really powerful, really challenging stuff. And as with Scorsese, I think Spike Lee was worried that people kind of missed the point of his film. And so it, it opens with a definition of the word satire, <laughs> and as Spike Lee oh, yeah. said that he put that in there for the critics that wouldn't get it <laughs> to really like it's <laughs> so good yeah I um, need to see this one again I saw it in theaters believe it or not wow yeah and yeah. it was very powerful yeah yeah it's very very powerful very intense and every scene has some kind of intense aspect to it but it builds to a crescendo that you know, it basically ends the only way it can. And then we get a montage that is there for the audience. Do you think what you've just seen is ridiculous and over the top? Well, look at what happened in our recent history. and That rings so much of the Hollywood Shuffle, which we watched right. together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Damon Wayans also. Right. That's more of a straightforward kind of traditional comedy yeah. that's a little more digestible for like a 
an uptight audience who doesn't want to be challenged. Yeah. Bamboozled is like, oh, you don't want to be challenged? You haven't been challenged yet. Exactly. You, <laughs> you haven't, haven't been challenged really been enough. challenged yet. <laughs> and what's beautiful about this movie is that it was released to time with the 100 years of cinema celebrations. And I just love that Spike Lee made this movie to say, yeah, here's what the past hundred years have been like yeah. for black people, you know, and it's still going on. And it feels like this movie's themes and, and the stuff that it explores are just even more relevant than ever. So, yeah, Bamboozled, another huge recommendation. And um, if you love Scorsese and you haven't given Spike Lee a chance, definitely, definitely similar artists with a similar very strong voice and approach to structure definitely and, yeah and rooted in their their personal narratives where yes. they grew up yeah 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 and yeah. telling that story but in a way that really anyone can relate to yeah yeah absolutely all right well what's next from you Shay? okay i'm going to talk about a movie from 1989 called sweet home this is a Japanese film. It's directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, the director of Cure and Pulse. Pulse is one of my favorite Japanese horror films of the 2000s. It's absolutely terrifying. But this was actually a little more like The Legend of Hell House meets, I don't know, Evil Dead Trap or something. Oh, wow. It's really, really fun. has a great gory set pieces, monsters. It's about a film crew that goes into a, the, the home of a dead painter, but they're attacked by the ghost of his wife. But what's really interesting is it was released in tandem with a video game also called Sweet Home, oh, wow. put up by Capcom, which was eventually adapted into the Resident Evil video game series. Oh, no way. So this is a Whoa. movie that inspired the Resident Evil games and the effects are so amazing. And guess who did them? Who did them? Dick Smith. No way. Wow. For real, Dick Smith. So these actors give very exaggerated but effective performances. The story is really engaging. The pace accelerates and I mean, there's just some wild, wild stuff. Like there is some violent kind of yokai style characters, not to spoil too much, but at one point there is a severed torso dragging itself down a hall for a really long time. Really great body melts, like just insane gore on the dead alive scale. It would be really fun to watch over the Halloween season. I don't think this has ever had a Blu-ray release but it is out there. Yeah, I think it will be on a streamer somewhere. I think I've seen it pop up on Shudder um, okay. in the US. I don't know about the UK, but there's ways of watching it, oh, I'm sure. Oh, track it down. It's so fun. Yeah, excellent, excellent. All right, well, we're going to move on to extra features, uh, but we're not actually because we don't have any extra features. We don't. No. Yeah, there's just... There's just... It's just none. Um, and there'll be none next time or the time after, I'm sure. But... I can reveal to you what Dan and I will be doing next episode. Dan will be back and uh, we're going to be talking about The House That Screamed, a.k.a. La Residencia. This is one that's been a little bit slept on. So please do watch it before the episode because it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. I don't want to spoil a single second of it for you. One of the earliest recommendations, actually, that we ever made on this show. I think maybe I recommended it in the first ever episode. Oh, so wow. I'm glad that it's getting this Blu-ray release and uh, Dan yeah. and I will be talking about it. He loves it too. Full circle. It's his choice this time. 
So that's about it. Shay, how can people follow you on the internet? On Instagram at black underscore V-V-I-D-E-O. That's black video. I'm also on Letterboxd. Ronnie Specter, but spelled like ghost. Spectre. Yeah, yeah. And Shay puts up quite a lot of reviews on her letterbox. So uh, that's definitely worth a follow. I do less reviews. I am working in the background on a complete list of every film we've ever covered on the Arrow Video podcast, but that becomes ever harder (laughs) because every episode there's more and more that I have to add. Um, But one day I will publish that. And I do reviews every now and then. He Uh, does, and they're always fun. Oh, thanks, Shay. And yeah, if you want to hear more from me and Shay, especially when Dan's back and Shay's away, uh, then do give us a follow on patreon.com forward slash VHS Quest, where we cover four weird movies and not so weird movies like we've done um batman recently i think mm-hmm. we're gonna do goodfellas more in depth at some point like we do do popular titles as well as we do some of the weirdest garbage you've never heard of and stuff that has a cover that looks so incredibly boring and then you watch the movie and you're like oh my god where has this been my whole life exactly yeah that is the spread of stuff that you'll get on vhs quest and all for four dollars a month so just a dollar a week for uh, four recommendations a week. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye.